So as I was saying before Coffee and Connection, we are in the book of 2 Kings, which we dabbled in a little last summer with the life of Elisha, who's going to pop up again briefly uh, this morning, as we're kind of crossing over a little bit with uh, where we ended last year. But we're going to focus on a man named Jehu. And so as I uh, tell you about Jehu's story, there is uh, a lot of names that get thrown out. And uh, there's a couple of J names and, and just a lot of names in general. So I have enlisted the help of our young adults who are sitting at the back there. They've got four signs with emojis that represent each of the kings. And so we have King Jehu, who Ben has with the crown, because he's going to be the king. And we have the young adults are over there, if you're looking for them. Uh, we have King Ahaziah, who I think Jamie has. He's got the shocked emoji, because he's going to be in for a surprise. We have Joram, who I believe Rachel has. And he uh, has a, a bandage, because he's wounded, as we will see. And we have Ahab, who Jeremy has. He's got a, it's harder to t- see, but he's got a pouty face because he's kind of a powder. And he's the king that we talked about the last couple of summers because he does battle with Elijah and Elisha. So as I say their name, they're going to hold up the sign and you can look over and uh, I'm sure that I will mess up the names because as I was practicing, I messed up the names multiple times. Uh, so that's always fun. All right, so we're going to talk about King Jehu. Oh, Ben, there you go. King Jehu, who is anointed as king of Israel, while King Ahaziah is king of Judah. And while actually King Joram was still the functioning king of Israel. The anointing of Jehu, there, perfect Ben, good job, is also a, a shift of dynasty. Whereas in Judah, it was always the descendants of David that reigned uh, because of God's promise to David. Israel gets different families that reign. And so now I'm going to throw out a couple of one-time names uh, that I don't have signs for because they only appear once. But there was King Elah, and his entire family generations earlier had been the king. And uh, his family was wiped out by this man named Zimri, who was a commander in his army. Zimri was king for seven days until they found out that Zimri was the one who assassinated the king, and so they killed him and passed off the kingship to Omri. And Omri was another commander of the army, and he is the father of Ahab. Jeremy, Ahab, there we go. Now, now we really see how much attention the young adults paid during the services. <laughs> uh, so uh, Ahab is the king whom Elijah battled against and his wife Jezebel who really pulled the strings. And when Ahab died, his son Ahaziah, not that Ahaziah, almost tricked you, it was a different Ahaziah, became king. And then he became sick and he died And so his brother took over, who is King Joram. Yes, Rachel. King Joram takes over. 
And it was with Joram that this dynasty finally ends, as Jehu is anointed king. And here's how it happened. Elisha summons a group of prophets, and he sends one of them to Ramoth Gilead with a flask of oil. And this young prophet is tasked with finding Jehu, who's a commander in the army, and anointing him as king. And so the young prophet makes the journey, armed with his flask of oil, and he finds Jehu hanging out with his friends, other commanders in the army, for Israel's at war with Aram at this time. And so the young prophet follows the instructions. He takes Jehu into a separate room. Your arms are going to get a workout, Ben. Uh, he takes him into a separate room, and there he anoints him king. And he says, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anoint you the king over the Lord's people, Israel. You are to destroy the family of Ahab, of Ahab, uh, your master. In this way, you will avenge the murder of my prophets and all the Lord's servants who were killed by Jezebel. After this speech and the anointing, the young prophet just runs as fast as he can out of there. He does not stick around to see the response of Joram's armies to the fact that he just anointed another man king. Very much an act of treason. And so Jehu comes out to his buddies. And they're like, what did that guy want? And Jehu says, well, you know these prophets. They're a little crazy. They just ramble on and on and on and on and on. I said, we don't believe you. You're hiding something from us. And so Jehu confesses. He said to me that God has anointed me king over Israel. And all the commanders grab horns and they blow them and they shout, Jehu is king. And now the only barrier is that the acting king, Joram, is still alive. Joram had been at Ramoth Gilead fighting against Aram, but he was wounded in battle, which is why his emoji has a bandage. And so he is taking to Jezreel to recover. And so Jehu hatches a plot with his friends. He says, don't let anyone leave the city so that they can't warn Joram that I've been anointed king. And then he takes a group of them and he heads for Jezreel. So Joram is recovering from his wound and he has a visitor. Ahaziah, king of Judah, is visiting his friend Joram. There's a watchman up on the tower and he's looking out and he sees a group of people riding towards the city. And so he calls out, I see a company of troops coming. And so Jehu gets him to send a messenger uh, to see what's happening. So the messenger comes to, or not, sorry, I see I said the name wrong. Joram sends the messenger to Jehu. <laughs> there we go. Told you this was going to happen. Jehu, or he comes to Jehu and he asks, do you come in peace? And Jehu says, what do you know about peace? Fall in behind me. And so the messenger does. He switches allegiances and starts following Jehu. The watchman reports the, the scout met the group, but now he's riding alongside him. And so Joram sends another messenger. The messenger comes to Jehu. Jehu, do you come in peace? 
Jehu gives the same answer. What do you know about peace? Fall in behind me. So the messenger does. Starts following. The watchman says, that messenger has also just started following the group. I think it's Jehu who's leading the charge and he's driving like a madman. So Joram and Ahaziah jump into their chariots and they ride out, ride out to meet Jehu. And Joram asks, Jehu, do you come in peace? And Jehu says, how can there be peace as long as the idolatry and the witchcraft of your mother Jezebel surrounds us? And at this, Jehu grows greatly afraid. And he turns and he flees. And he yells, it's treason, Ahaziah, as he runs away. And Jehu takes out his bow. I don't have a bow. I have a crossbow. But Jehu takes out his bow and he loads it. And the shot that Legolas would be proud of. He shoots a bow, an arrow, not a bow. You don't shoot bows. Shoots an arrow. Oh, yeah. Ooh, I almost got Sue. Sorry, Sue. <laughs> and he hits Joram right in the back, piercing his heart, who's already wounded, by the way. And Joram falls down dead. And so Jehu tells him to throw Joram's body into the land that belonged to Naboth. And this land is a callback to Elijah. And so those of us who were here are going to take those of us who weren't here back down memory lane to two summers ago. We were meeting in the Langley Events Center, which seems like a long time ago, in the banquet hall with maybe the faintest thought that we weren't going to be there anymore and we're going to be moving, but I think probably most of us didn't think we were going to be leaving the banquet hall anytime soon. And we're talking about Elijah. And during this time, uh, one of the stories we were talking about was uh, Ahab was sitting in one of his homes in Jezreel and he's looking out his window over this lovely vineyard that was next to his house. And uh, he wanted this vineyard. It belonged to a man named Naboth. And he wanted this vineyard so he could turn it into a vegetable garden, which is just a crime in and of itself. Um, but he decided he wanted this as a vegetable garden. And so he goes to Naboth and he offers him way more money than what the land's worth in order to buy this. And Naboth says, no, I don't want to sell this. And so Ahab grows pouty and he mopes around his room for weeks like a toddler and uh, eventually his wife just gets fed up with it. And Jezebel says to him, you're the king, just go and take it. And so Ahab has Naboth killed and takes over his vineyard. And because he does this, Elijah comes to Ahab with a prophecy from God. I will bring disaster on you and consume you. I will destroy every one of your male descendants, slave and free alike, anywhere in Israel. I'm going to destroy your family as I did the family of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and the family of Baasha, son of Ahijah. For you have made me very angry and have led Israel into sin. And then he also takes on that Jezebel will also die on the plot of land belonging to Naboth. And now Joram take, no, see, I even wrote it down wrong. Jehu takes Joram, the son of Ahab's body, and puts him on this land that his father wickedly took. And now Ahaziah has just watched Joram 
flee and get shot down with an arrow. And so he turns and flees. And Jehu commands his archers to take a shot. And not to be outdone by Jehu, they also shoot the arrows. I'm going to try to get Luke. Oh, he's behind a barrier. Oh. <laughs> I almost got him. <laughs> he shoots. Uh, and Ahaziah doesn't die right away. He gets wounded. And he starts retreating. <laughs> and uh, eventually he gets to a town, uh, another town. And there he dies. And so, so far, Jehu's reign has started with the death of two kings and a queen. For he then goes to Jezreel and has Jezebel thrown out of a window. Which I'm not going to really touch on because we preached that last summer. And if you want to hear that message, then you can listen to that one on our website. So two de- the death of two kings and a queen. But we aren't even close to being done yet with that. Jehu sends a letter to the capital city, Samaria. And he tells them to choose their new king amongst Ahab's 70 sons. And have them come out and meet him in battle to fight for the dynasty. But the officials are afraid of Jehu and so pledge their allegiance to him. And so he gets them to send him the, the heads of all of Ahab's sons. And then he goes into the city himself And he kills all of Ahab's relatives, all his important officials, all his personal friends, and all of his priests. And so Jehu fulfills the prophecy that Elijah had told. Ahab's uh, family and descendants are all wiped out. But we are still not done. He's hanging out... um, somewhere near Jezreel, when he meets a company of people coming from Judah. And they tell him that they are uh, heading out to visit King Joram and his mother Jezebel, who they don't realize have died. And so Jehu seizes them, takes them to Jezreel, and kills all 42 of them. And yet we are still not done. Jehu calls a meeting of all the people of the city. And he tells them, I am going to throw a worship service to Baal like this city has never seen. Baal was the god that Ahab and Jezebel promoted the worship of in Israel that led to their battles with Elijah and Elisha. And it became the main uh, worship in Israel at that time. And so Jehu says, you're not going to see such a worship service like this before. And so he gathers all of the priests, all of the worshipers, all of the servants of Baal, brings them into the temple of Baal, and then kills them all. And so he wipes out Baal worship in Israel. And he takes the temple of Baal and he turns it into a public toilet. Cool. All right, thanks, volunteers. Good job. You can rest your arms now. All right, for his faithfulness to God in this aspect of wiping out Baal worship 
and fulfilling his prophecy of taking out Ahab's family because Ahab's family had so long led Israel into disobedience to God by worshiping Baal. Jehu is given a promise. His dynasty will last till the fourth generation. But in Jehu's 28 years as king, he did not rid Israel of idol worship. Yes, he removed the temple of Baal, or rather turned it into a toilet, and he removed all of Baal's worshipers and priests. But he didn't get rid of these two golden calves that way back at the beginning of the split, the very first king of Israel, after they split from Judah, set up a golden calf at the southern border of the city and at the northern border, of the, uh, not the city, of the country, and the northern border of the country. And he did this because he didn't want people traveling into Jerusalem to worship God there for fear that they would just get tired of continually traveling back and forth and having to cross borders and yield customs and all those things, uh, and that they would just stay there. And he would lose his power, and they would decide just to follow David's line. And so he set up these calves and said, these are your gods, now worship these. So he didn't remove those. He really didn't uh, seem to care much whether the people worshiped God or not after that. And so idol worship stayed in the land. And because of this, the borders of Israel began to shrink as this king, King Hazael, started taking portions of it. As we look at the reigns of these kings this summer, we must understand that the book of Kings is compiled with a purpose. There, uh, all these stories and all these uh, accounts of the kings are compiled with the purpose of trying to explain why Israel, or Israel and Judah have gone into exile. And exile is the largest event that happens in the Old Testament. It's when Israel is taking, Israel and Judah are taking out of the promised land because of their failure to obey God. And their whole identity as a nation is now questioned by them. And so the book of First and Second Kings is making the case that the reason they went into exile is the fault of the kings. They failed to establish proper worship of God in Israel and in Judah. It shows up primarily in three areas. Idol worship, which is a big one. We see it constantly throughout that they're worshiping gods other than God himself. Religious ritualism, which means they're just kind of going through the motions. They're offering sacrifices still to God, but their heart's not really in it. They're just kind of doing it because they're going through those motions. And social injustice is the other one. And this social injustice is perpetuated by the kings of Israel and Judah. And so we look at the reign of King Jehu. And the silence about the majority of his reign is a judgment against his reign. It's two chapters worth, really, of Jehu uh, that's talking about. And it really covers maybe a month or so of his reign, the very beginning, when he's just killing people. <laughs> as he's executing God's judgment. And after that, you get like a little paragraph about the other 27 years and 10 or 11 months or so. The other time we hear about Jehu is actually in a different book, a book of Hosea, the prophet. And it says this, And the Lord said to Hosea, Name your child Jezreel, for I'm about to punish King Jehu's dynasty to avenge the murders he committed at Jezreel. In fact, I will bring an end to Israel's independence. A prophecy much like the prophecy that was told against Ahab that Jehu executed the judgment of. And so this shows that Jehu likely overstepped 
his commission from God of wiping out Ahab's family. And this is likely those 42 people from Judah that he killed. They're coming to visit the king and queen. They weren't part of the family of Ahab, or if they were, they were likely distant relatives and from Judah. And so it didn't fall under the judgment that God had placed. And yet, Joram took them and killed them anyway. He also goes and kills Ahab's personal friends. Those aren't family members. Kills important officials. They aren't family members. And his failure to take down this golden calf sets him up as a king much like Saul rather than a king like David. See, Jehu is all gung-ho to jump on the execution of God's judgment against Ahab train, but not on the establishing justice in Israel train. Because executing God's judgment on Ahab was beneficial to Jehu. It actually just followed the common practice those day, during those days. When a dynasty changed, the new dynasty would kill all the family members, well, most pretty much just the males, of the previous reign. And that was to ensure that no one could make a claim to their throne, to secure their power. And so Jehu was perfectly fine with killing all of Ahab's relatives and then going that other step of getting rid of the officials and the friends and then these visitors from Judah because it helped secure his own power. So he would go unchallenged. Jehu only acted in obedience because it benefited him. And for us, it's easy to do the same thing. Maybe that friend that we particularly don't like, you know, being around, but they got a pool. (laughs) Or they got a hot tub. And so we get the benefit of having access to that pool and hot tub. They get the benefit of calling you their friend and showing off their pool and their hot tub. Even better if it's a pool and a hot tub. Or you have some video game, you want to spend some time playing video games, but your mom says you have to clean your room first. And so you run upstairs, you shove everything in the closet, and you play your video game. This is kind of like what Jehu did. Jehu, if he could have done just the bare minimum of what God asked and still be king, he would have. But just because of the nature of power, he went above and killed more people so that he could have that power. He was willing to do that, obey God, so that he could have the benefit. We shove things in our closet, so we obey our mom and play video games. In the New Testament, the Pharisees fall into the same trap that Jehu does. The Pharisees read First and Second Kings and the prophets in the Old Testament, and they interpret it as saying that Israel did not follow the law that God gave them through Moses, and that's why they got sent into exile. So their solution, let's just follow the law perfectly. They still, even though they were living in the promised land, they still viewed themselves as an exile because they weren't their own nation. They were underneath Rome. So they said, if we follow the law really, really well, then God will make us our own nation again. And so they would take one of the laws in the Bible 
and they would make another law that was kind of like a fence around it. So that if you didn't break this law, then you weren't even going to come close to accidentally breaking this law. So for example, Exodus 23.19 says, you must not cook a young goat in its mother's milk. It's a law. Very important to follow that law. So the Pharisees made this rule surrounding this realm. Do not eat meat and cheese on the same plate. Just in case the cheese came from the mother of that meat that you're eating. Have them on separate plates so they don't touch. That's just one example. Jesus often uh, goes head to head with Pharisees over Sabbath rules because here's the Sabbath rule, rest on the Sabbath. Pharisees make rules around it. You can't walk this far on the Sabbath. You can't lift up this much weight on the Sabbath. Even nowadays, uh, apparently you can't press some buttons. There's some stories of people who are in Israel during the Sabbath and there's just a bunch of people who are still following Judaism and they stand in the elevator waiting for someone who's not Jewish to walk in and press the button. These are the kind of things that the Pharisees were doing just to make sure that no one would accidentally break those laws. And soon their piety and their rule following got them another benefit. The people adored them. The people loved the Pharisees. They were so holy. They were so amazing. Such good worshipers of God. We all wanted to be like Pharisees. And so this reason for following the law might have shifted a little bit. It wasn't so much coming out of Rome as being really popular with the people. They started gaining power because they had the popularity of the people. And with all these extra rules that they were adding, they were leading the people astray. This is why Jesus says some really harsh words to the Pharisees. You brood of vipers, you whitewashed tombs. And he goes on a long spiel in uh, Matthew talking about these Pharisees. And sometimes we can read that passage and be like, oh, yeah, those Pharisees, they were awful. But we should actually listen to some of those words and maybe reflect on them, see what it says about our faith. Jesus says to them, do not, to, to the people, do not, do what the Pharisees say, but don't do what they do. For they don't practice what they preach. They crush people with unbearable standards and yet don't lift a finger to ease the burden. Are we placing crushing moral burdens on others? Are we expecting them to behave a certain way before they can come to Christ? And yet act otherwise ourselves. So replacing burdens on people but not helping them. Easing the load a little bit on them by helping them walking alongside of them. Jesus says to the people, everything they do, the Pharisees do, is for show. Praying long prayers in front of everyone, glorying in seats of honor. Are we doing the godly things in order to have the approval of others? Or out of our love for God, out of our desire to grow closer with God? The Pharisees tithe to even the tiniest amount And yet they ignore the most important things, justice, mercy, and faith. This is equivalent to cleaning our room by shoving everything in the closet or underneath the bed. That's easy to do. Depending how big your closet is, I suppose. Rather than organizing and putting everything where it belongs. 
Do we focus on the, easy, the things we find easy in our faith? Maybe we find it easy to be generous. Maybe we find it easy to read our Bible every day. Maybe we find it easy to pray long prayers all day long. But ignoring some of the harder things that can be do, that, can, that we can do. The harder things like standing up for justice in areas where there isn't justice. Or showing mercy to other people. And showing forgiveness to people who have offended us. Or faith by placing our trust in God. Those are harder things to do. Giving up control and letting God control it instead of us. The Pharisees are like whitewashed tombs. They look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside they are filled with rottenness. It's kind of similar to the second one. Are we focused on the outward appearance of our faith, but actually ignore the things that God are asking, uh, is asking us to transform in our inner lives? Are we focused on the outside, looking like a beautiful, Jesus' tomb, but a beautiful Christian, but inside we're filled with skeletons of anger and jealousy or lust or greed that God wants to transform? The underlying theological concept, the underlying theology here is a motivation of actions. Do we live out our faith in order to appease an angry God so that he will save us and give us eternal life? Or are we living out our faith because we know that God loves us, that God is in relationship with us, and because we love him? Those are different motivations. And I confess that I so often fall into the former one, so often trying to do things in order to earn the love of God, to earn salvation. So, so often I need to be reminded that I've or- I don't need to earn God's love, that God already loves me. That before I do any of those things, God says, you're my beloved son. Before you do any of those things, that God says, you're my beloved son or you're my beloved daughter. And so our action points are these. The worship team, the first song uh, is going to leave lots of space for some reflection. And so the first action point during this reflection is to reflect on those four areas of our faith. Are we placing burdens on others? Are we seeking others' approval? Are we just taking the easy route and not stretching ourselves in justice, mercy, and faith? And are we ignoring the inner transformation that God wants to make in us? We are going to have prayer response team members at the back who are willing to go, for, uh, go with you in prayer to God, asking for transformation in these things like only God can do. That's your action point during this worship time. Your action point this week, we are in a family-inclusive service. You're, many of you are sitting with your family gathered in here. Have this conversation with your family. Parents, ask your kids to reflect in these areas. And share their answer. I am often amazed with our students' answers when I ask them questions like this. Usually, <laughs> I ask with little faith <laughs> and expect the I don't know answer. And often they come with just amazing evaluations of where they feel their faith is at. And as parents, share your own evaluations about your own faith with your kids. Be authentic and open with them about your struggles with your faith. Or take a group of trusted friends out for lunch or coffee. 
and share your evaluations and your reflection on these. Hold each other accountable in growing closer in relationship with God. Lift each other up in prayer to the God who has the power to transform us into the image of himself.